Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis in the life sciences industry to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome Karen Zatterday, President, CEO, and Chairman of the Board at Axigen. Thanks for joining us today, Karen. Hi, thank you for having me, Ro. Great. So Karen, to kick us off, talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Well, in some ways, it's a little different than a lot of folks. I actually started in a big company, Johnson & Johnson, and I started in medical devices. I'm an engineer undergrad, MBA from Kellogg, and so I actually started in manufacturing and enjoyed that, enjoyed learning how to manage people and organize work and direct activities and make objectives happen. But I got pulled into a, an assignment for corporate JNJ, looking at a strategic planning and, and looking at where surgery and medicine was going to go for the long term. And it opened my eyes to all the unmet needs for patients. And the manufacturing world seemed too small after that. And so I started to move into other roles and more commercial applications within J&J and had nice opportunities and experiences in marketing and marketing development. So sort of shining a light actually on unmet needs so that you can then solve those and ultimately in business development as well. So we could bring in new technologies and companies into the J&J fold. And through that, I got to see all these great innovations that other companies were starting up and doing on the outside of J&J and finally decided I thought I'd rather be on the other side of the table working on new stuff for healthcare. So I decided to leave, thought I would go start a company. And I've had a mentor for many years, a serial entrepreneur, and called him after I had resigned from J&J and said, I've done this and I'm going to go start a company. And he said, oh, that's great. I knew you loved innovation and this would be a good step for you there's just one problem. No one will fund you. (laughs) And that was a little bit shocking to say, well, why? Why won't people fund me? And he said, what's the big company experience is big company. People have a tremendous amount of knowledge, but very often they don't function well in a small entrepreneurial environment that they struggle with the ambiguity of decision-making when you don't have time, you have to make a decision and they struggle with the lack of resources, less money, less people. And he said, I think you can do this, but you're going to have to prove yourself to VCs before anyone is going to grant you the funds you need to really develop a company. And so I started a small consulting business working with VCs on emerging growth companies, in essence, being the chief commercial officer part-time for several different companies at a time, whatever is in their portfolio. And along the way, they uh, mentioned that there was this little company down in Florida that they were looking at making an investment in. And what did I think about it? Would I go down and meet with them? And I met with the founder, a gentleman named Jamie Grooms. And by the end of dinner, I called my husband and said, I think we need to move to Florida. (laughs) This is a great little idea and a substantial unmet need. And I'd love to do it. And that's actually how I came to Accident. Yeah, great. I love that really smart and thoughtful approach of getting exposure to early stage companies through your consulting business after J&J. I'm curious, as you look back on your career at J&J, and what are parts of your experience at J&J, as well as like learnings that you brought along with you to Oxygen, as well as where did you observe gaps in your background coming from, you know, 
big pharma to early stage biotech? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think, first of all, the big company background gave all employees there, and especially myself, a wonderful foundation in functional education. And so I had the opportunity to be in marketing and sales and product development, business development, manufacturing. And I learned the ropes in all of those. I learned the regulations. I learned the requirements. I learned how to manage people through those functional responsibilities in a way that you never get training in a small startup. In a small startup, you learn trial by fire until you get burned. And then you go, okay, I won't do that again. But in J&J, you got this great education. What you didn't get at J&J is things like, how do you raise money? How do you manage cash? Not a PL. How do you manage cash? Which is, as a startup, is what you're really worried about is to make sure you don't burn through the cash. And also in big companies, I believe, and I would describe it as in big companies, they crowdsource decision making. So if you think about crowdfunding, right? But crowdsource decision making. When you think about a big company, it's really hard to figure out who made the decision because it's sort of a group think to move to a decision. And in a small company, you don't have the time. And ultimately, someone really has to be accountable for deciding, are we going a little bit left? Are we going a little bit right? And that's something that I see a lot of big company people freeze and unable to navigate. And something I think if people are interested in making the leap from a big company to the what I think is the fun of innovation and entrepreneurship, that looks attractive to them. I think they have to ask, do they have the intestinal fortitude <laughs> to be able to be the one that is accountable for the decision. Yeah, great response, Karen, and certainly resonates with me based on what other guests have said in terms of how great the company background can be. And I think, again, what a wonderful job you did of, A, talking to your mentor and seeing where the gaps were and then filling those gaps. So now switching gears a bit, talk to us about the peripheral nerve injury landscape from your perspective, and help set the stage for what Oxygen's working on now? Well, this is what got me so excited and why I joined Oxygen is I have been involved in surgery and wound care from both devices and biologics vantage points over many years. And there really hasn't been innovation in nerve repair. And uh, nerves are injured in lots of ways. They're injured in traumatic injuries, but they're also injured in surgery all the time. In order to access whatever it is you're trying to get to, you cut through a bunch of nerves. And in many cases, those are the morbidities of the procedures that we talk about. I'll just give an example. In a prostatectomy, the erectile dysfunction and incontinence that men face aren't because they had prostate cancer. It's because in removing the prostate, they injure some nerves that control those functions. Same thing is true in facial paralysis. When a person ends up with facial paralysis because of a facial tumor, again, it's not the tumor that causes that, it's the nerve that causes that. And so we realize that there are so many places that nerves are injured, and yet so often they're ignored and have not been treated. And so we dug in and said, okay, then what are some things that we can do to help surgeons when they have these issues? And that's really the focus of what we've been doing today. We focus on, though there's lots of places to grow from here, we focus on traumatic injuries. So these are injuries that present into the emergency department and then get referred for a repair, every type of trauma that you can imagine. But you know, you name the gamut of kitchen knives to, oops, I dropped a chainsaw on my hand. Those are all the sorts of things that might be a traumatic injury. 
We also then added in tumor reconstructions of the mandible. So essentially right here in the jaw that controls sensation for that half of the mouth, that nerves there control sensation for that half of the mouth. We added in and recognized that women who have breast cancer, when they have a reconstruction, they are given the shape of a breast, but the nerves were not hooked up. So while the woman may look normal, she never feels normal again. In fact, what we heard most commonly from patients is, I want to hug my children and feel them. I don't have any sensation. It's like having a big pillow strapped across my chest. I can't even tell my children are there. That's an important part of nurturing, and women want to return back to normal. We provide a procedure called resensation that is an opportunity for them to return back to that more normal sensation. And then recognizing recently that peripheral nerves also are a cause of chronic pain. So nerves that heal badly send aberrant signals back to the brain. And historically, much of our pain management has been just that, managing the symptoms of pain. But here we have an opportunity to go in and cut out the bad segment of the nerve that removes the painful stimulus and then allows an opportunity to return back to more normal lifestyle minus the pain by repairing that nerve. Phantom limb pain is a good example of that. Somebody who's an amputee, they say my foot hurts, but they don't have a foot. So how come their foot hurts? Well, the nerve that went there, essentially the nerve fibers have gotten tangled up and they are sending static back to the brain, telling the brain that the foot hurts. We can remove that by cutting off that little scar ball of nerve fibers and then ending that nerve in a way that keeps it healthy and not sending these bad signals. And Karen, for our education Why do you think that there hasn't been enough progress made as it relates to peripheral nerve injuries prior to obviously oxygen and a few others that are pursuing this? I think that's a really great question and one I've asked myself often. You know, it's interesting, a convergence of technology sometimes allows something to happen where before it wasn't possible. I think also, frankly, nerves are tiny. They're something that surgeons cut through all the time, and it became commonplace to cut them and not even think about what they may do later. And then lastly, it's a little bit confusing for the patient because it's hard for them to know that they actually have a nerve injury. A common example actually is patients who had a hernia and may have had a hernia implant that ultimately rubbed against a nerve and causes chronic pain but they don't know that's the cause because the pain is located from the way they interpret it in the groin area. So they go see the urologist, not the general surgeon who actually did the procedure. So the general surgeon doesn't know. And so it's those mismatches that we find that really people didn't recognize the problem. So for us, one of the things we think is important is to shine a light on that problem. I think the advances in regenerative medicine have now made some of the solutions possible. And I think as we continue to advance and improve in imaging, so traditionally imaging wasn't discriminating enough to get a good look even at the outside of the nerve, because nerves again are tiny. And even today, it's very difficult to see what's happening inside the nerve with our current imaging technology. And I think those have all been reasons why in the past they weren't there. But as we advance in each of those areas, recognizing the problem, improving regenerative medicine, and then being able to see what's happening, I think we'll continue to see advancement in nerve. Great. With that helpful context, Karen, talk to us about the underlying technology at Axigen, how you initially got involved and what the last couple of years have looked like. Sure. Well, the original technology for what we do with our flagship product, Advanced Nerve Graft, is actually all spinoffs from spinal cord research. 
And so as uh, work has been done in spinal cord research, thinking about how can we regenerate the spinal cord, there were some inventors who said, well, hey, I wonder what this would do in the peripheral nervous system. (laughs) And so it's really identifying a few characteristics there that allowed suddenly an invention to happen that really hasn't been possible. Our product is a processed human nerve allograft. So it is human tissue that's been processed to remove the cells and cellular debris. These particular cells are highly immunogenic. So you would get a significant immune response if you implanted a product with cells or even remnants of cells. And people tried to make processed nerve allografts actually since World War II, and they were dismal is actually the outcome, uh, really awful. And so what became a couple of inventions became the sort of starting point was recognizing that nerves are these tiny structures that are made up of hundreds or thousands of little tubes. And if you want to extract the cells, you have to work them gently out of the ends of the tubes. If you take them out of the middle, you turn the inside of the nerve essentially to a biologic mush on the inside. And that doesn't work. Nerve needs both structure and some of the biological cues that are aligned in those tubes. And so removing those cells turns out to be something unique. Spinal cord is structured in the very same way. So this research on a method of breaking those cells and extracting them opened up the possibility for doing that in peripheral nerves. And then second, just like in spinal cord, there are certain proteins that shut down regeneration in the peripheral nervous system. And we've identified a method to inactivate those proteins. So in essence, we remove the stop signs to regeneration. Um, So typically people think about upregulating things. Well, in this case, we remove something that stops regeneration and uh, it allowed now for us to have the opportunity to repair these gaps in nerves. Karen, talk to us a little bit about indication selection. And so the reason I ask this question is, given your background from a commercialization perspective, and you're one of the few folks that we've had on the podcast that is on the commercial side, how do you go about assessing which indications to pursue first, second, and third, if you will? And any any tips that you can pass along to our listeners? It's a little of an art (laughs) more than it is a science. I think the hardest thing for entrepreneurs and innovators to recognize is that you can't do everything. And so for us, this has been a bit of a journey of prioritizing because nerves are all over the body and there are lots of needs. And yet if we dilute our efforts, we're going to have less and less impact actually overall. So for us, it's actually a a review of a number of key factors. So first, obviously, is that there is a technique and a product that works in the in the indication. So we do pilot work. For us, many cases, because we actually have our flagship product advance and then three complementary devices that work in nerve repair, they're all on label. We can go and work on technique development and verify that that works and then decide, is this an area we want to proceed with broader commercialization? So once you've made it through, obviously, regulatory hurdles, technique hurdles, it's based on some, some more subjective things. How big do we think the market size is? In many cases for us, that's subjective because there's not data that says how often this is even, it's not diagnosed. If they haven't diagnosed nerve injuries, I don't know how often the injury occurs. We have to estimate that. We also try and estimate the surgeon's readiness to change. Again, if they've been functioning like in the breast reconstruction 
arena, they've been functioning for years without hooking up the nerves. And it wasn't something initially, in fact, there was a very interesting gender dynamic. Initially, when we interviewed male surgeons, they said, my patients are completely happy. I never hear about problems with sensation. We interviewed female surgeons and they said, my patients always bring this up. It is always an issue. So there was even a difference in communication on the basis of genders, whether a patient would surface this as an issue. And so we spent a year actually working in social media, just highlighting the problem before we did a broad rollout of the solution, because we needed women to be able to go, oh, and I want to talk to you about sensation when they were talking to their surgeon. And that enabled us to then help them think about this as a solution. So you have to think about their readiness to change. And then finally, all this has to be paid for somehow. And uh, you've got to look at the reimbursement for the procedures in the countries that we're looking to move into. So U.S. and Europe or other regions and think about, will this be affordable within the reimbursement? Is there a way to change the reimbursement? Or in some cases, are there even non-coverage decisions already in place for addressing nerve issues? And in some cases, we've seen that as well. So all of that sort of gets mixed together and then we pick a priority. Great. And so, Karen, given that background... And given that you have products that are both regulated as medical devices, uh, as well as biologics, for those that haven't had previous exposure working at a company like that, talk to us a little bit about some of the complexities of having both medical device products as well as biologics products and how that informs your decision-making as a CEO. Well, when we started Oxygen in the early days, we decided that we were agnostic as to regulatory pathway. So that's a big decision, but it was a decision that was important when we were still small because we built all of our systems thinking about that in advance. So for us, it's not as big a lift as it would be you know, for an established company to think about all of the things that are different in those pathways. So there are things that are very similar all of our products are surgically based. So you have to think about the environment that we function in. The clean rooms would all be about the same, but the quality systems are different. You need to be able to document things in a different way, or at least have a very clear logic as to how you document things. Your validations need to meet the requirements that are in place. Clinical studies may require different types of interactions with the FDA. And most medical devices are post-marketing studies rather than pre-marketing studies. And then with commercials, so you have to think about healthcare compliance. And so what we've done is we've built our systems, for example, in healthcare compliance, we've done a very structured view looking at the AdvaMed guidelines and the pharma guidelines. And we have a a lot of documentation on this because we look at each point that they raise and try and decide, are we more device-like or are we more pharmaceutical-like in each of those characteristics to make sure that we are choosing what's the right way to make sure that we're providing the best possible healthcare. And so an, an obvious difference is that medical devices are technique matters. It's not a pill that just is, you know, there's no technique to it. In medical products or surgical implants, technique matters. And so the way that your professionals work with healthcare providers needs to be more device-like to make sure that harm is not done to the patient by improper training or lack of awareness in the surgical environment. And so we've done that in a way that we think obviously meets the compliance requirements, but also has the patient at heart. Okay, great. Going a bit back into time here, a couple of years ago, you all started commercializing products. Talk to us about how you got the team ready to go from 
primarily an R&D org to now one org that was commercially focused as well, and perhaps some of the, the learnings along the way. Yeah, it is a different transition to become a commercial company. Even the mindset of now our products are going to be used on humans, <laughs> and we need to be thinking about what that means and the consistency and quality that we need to have. I think for us, part of it is our culture of, from the very beginning, we have talked about our goal is to translate the best science into patient care. And we keep the patient front and center in really everything that we do. We invite patients to come and talk to people within the company, including our manufacturing and distribution people, so that to them, it's not a widget that they're shipping in a box, but that it is something that is going to change someone's life. And that makes a real difference in their commitment to making sure that the right things happen. And I think as a research program, you're very interested in your project and moving along. We tried to turn being a commercial company to be clear that being commercial is about changing patient care and that that isn't the number that we talk about. So as a commercial public company, we talk about our financial results every quarter. That's an important thing to our investment community. But for employees, we talk about the patients we impact in every quarter, because that's much more important than the number we achieved. And that's allowed us to continue to have a very focused culture, focused on changing those patients' lives. And Karen, your team is primarily based in Florida. Is that correct? Yes. What's it been like building a life sciences company in Florida, as opposed to one of the hubs and perhaps some of the non-obvious advantages of, of doing so that you've discovered? Well, we started in Florida because the technology is actually a spin out of the McKnight Brain Institute at the University of Florida. So there was an obvious local place to start. The labs were already available. They have a great incubator system. So as a small startup company, you kind of go the path of least resistance. And it seemed that that was the best place to keep going because we already had some resources that were very helpful for us. But as we grew, uh, University of Florida is in Gainesville, Florida. It's a great small college town. It was great to attract young people, sort of first or second job out of college because it was a fun place for them to move to. Senior management, I could attract sort of the empty nesters. People thought someday they'd move to Florida anyway, so I might as well move a few years early probably helps that it's a no income tax for the state. So that's also a good positive thing. But what we found was when we're trying to move as we grew and we needed to move mid-career people, Gainesville was a little bit of a lift to do that. And so we actually did a nationwide search to decide where are we going to put our second headquarters and where are we going to more importantly move our labs to. And we searched all over the United States and actually decided we didn't want to be in Boston or in some of the other biotech hubs because we saw an awful lot of job hopping that people did. There didn't seem to be a commitment and really the engagement that you want from a team when you're really trying to build something substantial for the long term. And so we decided we were by choice not going to be in one of those hubs. That still left a lot of green fields. <laughs> where, where do we move to? And ultimately, uh, we actually decided another place in Florida. That wasn't the original intent, but we chose Tampa. And it's around a city that provided a vibrant live-work 
play environment that Tampa has had a really good vision about creating a fun outdoor environment, um, lots of social spaces, lots of different types of housing because we've got people have all different needs, right? We have some people who want to live in an apartment and we have some people who want to live in the suburbs and we have some people that want to live on a horse farm. And all of those are within the access. And uh, ultimately today, from a recruiting standpoint, we have beautiful labs there. Florida is seeing windows looking out over the Hillsborough River and this beautiful view. I find that we bring in people from other parts of the country and they go, wow, labs in the basement and this is gorgeous. <laughs> and so it sort of sells itself. Yeah. And, and we're recording this on a day where Boston's getting about eight to 10 inches of snow. So that, that certainly resonates. And it's 80 here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, Karen, to wrap up, you've had a remarkable career ranging from big pharma to high growth biotech. As you look back on your career, what's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self? I have loved everything that I have done, and I'm really happy that I had the start at J&J that gave me that grounding. But if I could go back and tell my younger self something, it would be be brave and leave J&J sooner. (laughs) And it wasn't that it was a bad place to be, but it is a big leap when you're sort of in the cocoon of a big company with a nice career path and stock options and all the things that you have. And so it was a giant leap for me when I left. I can't tell you how many friends thought I was out of my mind that I gave up a job at J&J and went to go find something, start something, build something. I'm just saying on the other side of that, it's been extremely rewarding. I love what I've done here and I wish I had done it a little bit sooner. Well, Karen, with that inspiring message, thank you for joining us today for sharing a bit about your background and also the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Axgen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech 2050 POD. Until next time.